my, there I am. <laughs> ah, couldn't hear myself there. And if I can't hear me, that's always a problem. Um, welcome to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the lines and talk to the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the writers, directors, producers, costume designers, choreographers, composers, production designers, editors, uh, film editors, sound editors, you name it, we talk to them. Um, and of course, we always champion independent film. Today, we're championing two films, one for the second time uh, with our special guests today uh, who are going to be joining us. First up today, Sam Friedlander, writer-director Sam Friedlander is back with us. Yeah, our regular listeners may re recall Sam was with us last February uh, when his film Baby Splitters was on the festival circuit. Well, Sam got a distribution deal and the film is now out and about and available for everyone to see. Um, it is a comedy of unique proportions. Uh, so I'm very excited that we're going to have Sam back. And, uh, you know, some of you, you may recall that one of the interesting things about Sam as a filmmaker is that his quote-unquote day job is doing production. Uh, so, and he's been doing that for many years. So to still, even working in, in the industry for so long, you know, it still is a challenge in putting together a film and getting financing for a film, getting a distribution deal for the film. And it's going to be fun to talk, catch up with Sam and find out what he went through in the distribution process since we last talked to him uh, when it was still at the festival stage. So this should be really fun uh, to have Sam back. And then director Andrea Dorfman is going to be joining us. Uh, I can't wait to talk to Andrea at the midpoint of the show about her film, spinster all right i know some of you who know me you're thinking okay i picked this film because it applies to me um no it doesn't but it very easily could um it's a lot of fun it boasts an incredible performance uh from chelsea peretti who is the film's quote-unquote protagonist uh, watching the character of Gabby, you may think she's more of an antagonist, but we'll get into that with Andrea. Um, it is, a, it, the film surprised me. I didn't know what to expect. And I can honestly say I'm very pleasantly surprised with the film. Uh, so Andrea should be joining us at the half hour mark. Um, you know, before, uh, and I know Sam, Sam, I know you're there. I'm just going to keep you on hold for a, a couple minutes here. Two films that I really have to mention to all of you to see. Run as fast as you can to your, to your TV, to your streaming service. Two films that are exquisite. First is The Cuban, uh, directed by Sergio Navarretta, written by Alessandro uh, Piccioni, uh, stars Lou Gossett Jr., Anna Golja, uh, Shoray Agdashlu, this film, it's, it's magic. Uh, the music is by the acclaimed Grammy-winning um, Cuban jazz pianist Hilario Duran. It's a multicultural, multi-generational film. 
And it takes a look at Lugas, and Lugas it delivers another Academy Award-winning performance in this film as the elderly Lou, who is in a, in a nursing home. He is, it's end-of-life care, essentially. He has Alzheimer's, um, and nobody can connect with him. He doesn't eat. He doesn't react. Um, and this is a testament to, to Lou's uh, talent as an actor, that so much of the film he is in a catatonic state almost and then he connects with this young you know volunteer at the home um her name is Mina uh, played by the very talented Anna Golja and one day Mina is humming and the music sparks something uh in Lou and slowly we see not only a friendship develop but the film explores the value of music, the connectivity of music with the infirm, the elderly, with families, with generations. On every level, this film is amazing. Um, and it is fueled by Hilario Duran's music. Absolutely spectacular Sergio's direction, the uh, uh, Celiana Cardenas is the cinematographer, exquisitely lensed. Um, and no sooner did I see the film than I had to go and buy the soundtrack because Duran's music is that infectious and that fabulous. And I can honestly say I have played it every single day for more than two weeks now. Um, so uh, see it. It's available on all platforms, The Cuban. The other film that just opened on Friday, and I just spoke with uh, writer-director James Darcy this morning, as a matter of fact, before heading into the studio, Made in Italy, starring Liam Neeson and his son, Michael Richardson. Um, this is another amazing film shot in Tuscany, a father and son, that have been somewhat estranged and they're now coming together um, and bonding and grieving for the first time over the death of Robert's wife, Jack's mother. Um, everyone out there will probably recall the real-life incident where Natasha Richardson, um, Neeson's wife, Mikhail's mother, passed away uh, following a skiing accident a number of years ago. This adds another whole layer to this film um, to watch them as father and son and moments of grieving on screen. Um, it feels real. It feels cathartic, as cathartic maybe for them as, as it is for the audience. Um, the film, it's beautifully shot. Mike, uh, <clears throat> Mike Ely has shot the film does wonderful things with the diffused light of Tuscany. Um, Alex Belcher does the score, which stays light and bright, even in some more dramatic moments. But the real beauty here is, number one, James D'Arcy comes from in front of the camera, steps behind the camera with his first narrative feature. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. It is an, a sweet charmer. It is magical. But watching Liam and Michael together... That is, I would pay $20, and you all know I, I am against paying $20 for a pay-per-view for opening weekend or opening week uh, to sit at home and watch a movie. This movie 
I would pay the $20 for if it was the only way that I could see it. It is that it is so worth it uh, for the emotional experience, for the joy that you get watching this film, for the beauty. And yes, I definitely want to make a reservation, get a passport and go to Tuscany as soon as we can travel again. And people from America are allowed in Italy. Um, and two incredible films I can't recommend highly enough to you. Um, so now that I have pl plathered on about two, the two love films of my life right now, let us welcome the fabulous Sam Freelander. Sam! Hi there. Hi, welcome back. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm very excited you got the distribution deal. Yes, me too. It's been a you know, it's been an interesting year, obviously, and uh, it's had a you know, it's been a, an interesting journey with with what to do with the movie during the situation. Oh my God! Because the last time you were on the show last February, uh, February eighteenth of twenty nineteen, and you were on the fest circuit. Your fest, uh, the yeah, fest. Yeah, we we started the fest circuit uh, right right around then. We started. Yeah. We premiered at uh, Santa Barbara. Uh, yep. in, in 2019, that was our first uh, first stop, and it went well. As we talked about, we won we won the festival for the best feature, and then from there we did another. Um, we, we I think we did around 15 more festivals over the course of the year. Although our last two, which were supposed to be our kind of final two stops on the tour, were uh, were canceled because of uh, the the pandemic. It was we were right on that bubble in in March when things started to get shut down. Mm -hmm. So we we were lucky. You know, it was it was definitely. Not ideal to miss those, but we were lucky that we still were on a year when they were doing film festivals. Well, and you actually have distribution, and the film is now out there for everyone to see, and it couldn't be at a more perfect time because, number one, so many people keep saying, I've seen everything Netflix has. I need something new to see. Here is something new to see. I'm in an area where the theaters aren't open. What can I see? You can see. You have a captive audience here, Sam. I know we. It, it ended up kind of being, I guess, a blessing in disguise for, uh, you know, for an independent filmmaker like myself. When we had a deal, we made a deal in. Um, we kind of started to finalize the deal in in like February, March. Oh wow! And at the time, it was it still included a, a theatrical release. So, you know, for an independent filmmaker, that's like the holy grail. And then, oh um, as time went on, it became clear that we weren't going to have this. Uh, you know, because I think everyone was thinking by the middle, middle or late summer that this would be, that we might be more like New Zealand or something where stuff is opening again. But um, obviously, it didn't turn out that way. So, oh. but you know, like like you said, it's people that we have a captive audience. So, well, and you were positioned perfectly because I know I've spoken with a lot of producers and filmmakers over the months, and you know, some producers, Amanda Cook you know, can't stress highly enough if you're filmmakers and you've got content that is just about finished, but for something in post or a fine tuning or something, you know, and it's almost ready to go, get it out there, get, you know, start, you know, hit up for distribution and get it out there because the pipeline, there's only so much in the pipeline that, that can go out. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, that it is a very empty space right now there's just you know everything's been pulled off so yeah and all, you all the studio stuff and of course you with your background in as a producer in television 
you really appreciate and understand the logistics of what happens when all production is shut down and, uh, you know, how far ahead things may be edited, things may be not. You know, today, the big, the, the big news in, in telev- daytime television is General Hospital has a new episode today. Um, I did not know that. <laughs> this, this, is, this has been a countdown, Sam, let me tell you. Um, you know, they were very smart. Frank, Frank Valentini and his team, they had episodes canned. But when they saw the pandemic was and the lockdown was stretching and stretching, they went back and recut and inserted flashbacks in with the current material. But then they finally ran out of that. So, you know, it's and the fans are chomping the bit. And this is with with, you know, all the other soaps out there too with shows like Jeopardy which I think is back shooting next week or something I know the guys were over at Sony uh, already getting prepared for that but there's only so much that's done you know people think that oh yeah everything like a whole season is in a can or something it's not as you well know (laughs) Yeah, we were we were actually in the middle. I work, you know, as we talked about, I work on The Resident, which is a Fox medical show. Um, but we were we were in the middle of episode uh, 21 uh, out of a 23 episode um, season when all this hit, and we, you know, we shut down um, and season was cut short. Um, and we had already been renewed for season four, but you know, obviously at, at this point, normally we'd be shooting by now, and, right. and currently that's not happening. So it's uh, everything's on hold still. Yeah, I mean it's you know it it's a tough it's a tough situation that we're in right now, which is why a film like Baby Splitters having it come out and available, it's it's a blessing and the irony of the subject matter, because I'm sure this may be subject that everybody's be, that there's already been positing on social media about it because the premise here you have two couples, one half of each couple is anxious for parenting. The other half of each couple is not so anxious for parenting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they come up with this great idea. Ooh, we'll have a baby and we'll we'll split the baby. We'll we'll take it part of the time. You'll take it part of the time. Um, we could see a lot of that happening. Um, in you know, yeah, seven, know. eight, nine I've, months I've from now. Have lost childcare right now. Um. So, you know. Talked about, I know it's the whole thing. It's just, I just find the hilarity, the irony of, of your film in these times. I just think it's it's just delicious. Um, but to to bring everybody up to speed, give them a more in depth synopsis of Baby Splitters. Yes, yeah, so, I mean you got the, you got the sort of the first act there. You know, it's basically two couples. Uh, in each couple, one one person uh, is is sort of ready for ready for it, and the other one is hesitant. Um, and in one couple, it's it's the man that's ready, and in another couple, it's the woman that's ready. And so, you know, they're good friends, and they kind of jokingly say, you know, what if we just split a baby? Maybe it would be perfect. And then, you know, because uh, everybody has a reason for, and everybody has a reason against it. They're all just kind of at different places. Um, but yeah, so and they end up deciding to take this plan that starts off as a joke, and they try to go through with it and of course complications ensue and instead of doing what smart people would do which is you know when it when it starts to go off the rails call it off they kind of put themselves into a progressively worse situation and uh so you know it's a fun 
it's a fun movie where you just kind of get to explore this concept and explore the, you know, the fears of, of parenting and, and, and sort of watch these characters go on a journey where they each have, you know, their own arc. And uh, we, what I found is that people can identify it kind of from many different uh, perspectives. Some people identify with, you know, the ones that are ready. Some identify the ones that aren't. Some identify as parents or grandparents looking at their children making these decisions. So, you know, it's, it's been a really fun experience to, to show this to people and, and, and hear their responses. Well, and the characters that you create are, you know, they're very diverse in their life goals and really where, where their mindsets are. So you bring something in that everybody can connect to. You've got hardworking Jeff uh, and his wife, Sarah. You've got Taylor, who's a dancer, doesn't want kids. It'll ruin the body. It'll ruin the career, the whole thing. Then you've got poor Don, you know, uh, he really wants a kid. Um, and he's so into procreation and another one of him uh, running around the planet. So you really address, you've got all the, these different types of people. And then, of course, you've got the fabulous Mark Furstein coming in as a doctor in here. Yes, he, he plays Danny's, uh, Danny's therapist. Uh, he's, um, he, he's hilarious. Uh, I, I love Mark anyway. Um, going back to Larry Gay, renegade male flight attendant. Um, yes. <laughs> which is still, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's it, a side note here. I just talked to Richard really the other day. On Friday, Richard oh, yeah. Richard has mm-hmm. a new film that, that is uh, coming out this week, Limbo, and he's delicious in it. But we were talking about some of his other roles, and we were laughing about Larry Gay and his role as a bartender. And he told the story about how he showed up. He just got a call to show up at this location. He showed up, and he didn't really have any script, any sides or anything, and it was get behind the bar. And he, I mean, he just, and he said he had so much fun doing it. Um, yeah, he was, he's such a nice guy. I, I, I love Richard. We've known each other over 30 years. Um, oh, wow. And it's always great when he and I get to catch up. And then it's like, oh, have you heard from so-and-so? No, I haven't. Do you know what's going on with him? And it, it's just, it's great. It's, it's just great. But you know one of the uh, one of the great things, Baby Splitters. Not only is it funny, but you're pro- you've got really great production values, and a lot of people. I know it's surprising, but a lot of people still question the production values on quote unquote independent film. Um, I don't know why, but a lot of people do, and I've heard more people commenting about that probably in the past year than I have in the past 10. And you've got really nice production values here. Um, Your DP, Alicia Robbins, she keeps, I love the lighting. I love the lighting design of Baby Splitters. It's light, bright, energetic. And of course, then you've got Christine uh, Kern as as your editor. And it's very Mm -hmm. tough, always tough to edit comedy. But you do, you know, Christine does a really good job here. The two of you really developed a great pacing and not just for the film as a whole, but comedic pacing with each of your main actors, because each one has a different comedic styling in their delivery. And I find that very interesting in how you you guys handled that. 
Yes, you know the thing is that when you when you're doing a comedy is if you if you go in and you're working with your editor, and you start to find that you know we would go through the dailies and sometimes you go look for a funnier take and what I started to find with Christine was that she almost always picked the take that I would have picked and so you you feel really comforted and you feel really confident going into the edit when you know that your tastes align and that you know you don't have to. You don't have to spend your time looking through dailies to, to try to find funnier material. It's more spending your time working on, on really polishing the scenes. So that, that was, it was an amazing experience to work with her. You know, how difficult was it with this film um, in the editing process on finding that pace, on knowing when to hold, you know, how long to hold a shot, how long to hold a joke? Um, because that's tricky. And I'm curious, you know, how, how difficult that was in Baby Splitters. Well, to be honest, she's she's just a really good editor. So, I mean, most of the stuff worked. The problem that we, you know, not the problem we had was that the movie was just too long for a comedy. Like, the script was written at 120 pages. The first cut of the movie was like two and a half hours, and which is always the case. You know, your editor's cut is always significantly longer. But mm-hmm. once we got into cutting, it was really about how how to get the the story points to line up. And we actually spent more time, I think. You know, we spent a lot of time crafting the comedy, but she's she just she's really good at it. So it, it, that wasn't as hard sometimes as trying to figure out structurally how to to hit the key moments where we needed to hit them to keep the audience on board. And even as it is, you know, the movie is just you know it's like a, a couple minutes under. It's like an hour and fifty five minutes, mm-hmm. which is already kind of pushing the limit of how long you want to be on a comedy. So we went back and forth. We ended up cutting a, a ninety minute version of the movie that was a lot shorter, and we we sort of did a test screening and and. You know, we did a bunch of stuff to to figure out what was working with the audiences and what wasn't. But um, yeah, she just the comedy came from from I think the performances and from her her cutting. Mm-hmm. Well, and I I can easily see why a ninety minute or a ninety seven really would not work well for this film because you are addressing some some heavier thematic issues here, and you do give those dramatic moments their due. You don't shortchange them by any stretch of the imagination. And I can only imagine that in a shorter version of the film, the drama would have been just shortchanged and just felt either just dropped in or, you know, or just, you know, glossed over. Um, and you, yeah, and you don't sure. want to do that with this particular story because it is, it, you know, as funny as it is, it's rooted in some serious thought and serious issues. Yeah, I mean, you can't, I feel like it's hard to make a movie about pregnancy without addressing some of the other elements that are, you know, some of the worries and some of the, the actualities that happen. And, you know, that was important to me. And, and, you know, something I talked about with my wife, because, you know, there's a lot of personal stuff in there. So we just, you know, um, it was something we wanted to include. And I didn't want to have to cut that stuff out for sure. You know, once once you saw how the film was being received on the festival circuit, uh, Sam, how early did you start looking for distribution for Baby Splitters? So, at our, I think it was at our second screening in Santa Barbara, or maybe our third screening in Santa Barbara, we had already had um, somebody come up to us after the screening um, and say that they wanted to make an offer. So we, we started off very early knowing that there was interest. And so we... We sort of wanted to, we didn't want to jump, we wanted to have that festival experience, and it's something that I really, I valued with, with an independent film, is to, to, to be able to show it to audience, 
to captain your crew and with myself to just kind of feel that because a lot of times with an independent film you go to VOD and then you never actually get to see it with an audience you know right. like that's what happened with with Larry Gay was we made the movie but it went straight to VOD and and to theaters but we never you know it was like a limited release and I never really got to experience that with a with an enthusiastic audience with the cast and crew so we we kind of went through the circuit we were talking to distributors the whole time um and then sort of as the festival circuit came to uh to an end this spring in March we sort of looked at our options and we talked uh, you know me and the other producers and kind of decided which ones we wanted to talk talk with again and uh that we started actually doing more serious negotiations and you know within the matter of a few weeks we had we had wrapped it up but yeah we we sort of knew that we had uh, interest and there was there was multiple companies interested but we wanted to kind of finish the circuit have that experience and and see what came of it before we um before we made a deal I mean, how fun is it watching your film with an audience, and not just like awesome. not just like a California yeah. audience? Because this was in festivals all over the place. It was. We were we were international. We did a um, couple of amazing international festivals. We got we got into Raindance, which is out in the UK, which mm-hmm. is is one of the best in Europe, and and then we were at um, Vancouver up in Canada, um, and and uh, you know then all across the country from the East Coast and the West Coast. So. It was it was really fun, and I got to make it to to most of them. Um, and our, our last festival ended up being uh, Sedona, which I had never been to before, mm. and that was just an awesome festival. Um, so it was you know it was an awesome festival to end with. Now was and there, we won that one too. Well, <laughs> you begin and end on a win. You know you can't do better yeah. than that. You know, was there anything any uh, prevailing uh, comment that you got from people from uh, from the festival? moviegoers about the film was there a running kind of commentary or theme that seemed to take hold through all over the world is this screened you know i think i I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say that there was one i think there was a few but i i think certainly there was a lot of people that that said you know said they related to the choice the characters were making and you know i think if you buy into that dilemma if that's something you're experiencing or if something you have experienced then you're sort of along for the ride and i think you know we really had a lot of people um identify with the film um through one of our characters and since the movie doesn't really you know i, I had some people also say to me they appreciate it. the movie doesn't really judge you know it doesn't sort of say here's the ending and this is what you should you know this is all good and happy and this is the right ending it's sort of there's multiple perspectives and so i think you know, all the characters end up in a different place. Um, and I think people appreciate that they can watch it and, and maybe, you know, come away with something. Everyone comes away with something slightly different. Mm-hmm. So now, are you, have you decided, are you going to get behind the camera again and direct again? Um, have you been using this downtime to fuel your creative juices since you're not working on The Resident uh, <laughs> right now? <laughs> So, so what's the game not, plan? Uh, yeah, so we're we're at, we're still on kind of this COVID hiatus for the resident, um, and I'm not sure when exactly we'll be shooting again. But yeah, I'm 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 currently starting to um, to make some choices about what I'm writing next. I have several ideas, and and right now I'm in the phase where I'm I'm deci- I'm sort of outlining multiple ideas and deciding where I want to put my energy um, of writing. Um, but I've also been, my, we have a, we have a, a baby. So I've been also doing a lot of, uh, 
childcare because uh, you know my wife's been working a lot during during this time remotely, and so a lot of the childcare, ironically, given the subject of the movie, has fallen uh, on me. <laughs> well, with all the ch- with a lot of the childcare falling on you, as a as a pandemic bound dad. You know, what's the best advice you can give to other dads out there that suddenly find themselves at home? You know, I think we have it a little bit easier just because of the age of our son. Our son's like 19 months old, and so he's kind of at a perfect age where the the world isn't as big to him. You know, he's happy being in our house and being in our backyard and being with me and being with my wife. And, you know, we see my, my parents, so he sees his grandparents, uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't miss his friends. He doesn't miss school. He doesn't miss sports. And I think, you know, I'm lucky because we're totally happy and fine and I'm really enjoying this time with him. And it's not, it's not the same as if I think he was a teenager and he was like, dad, I want to go and see so-and-so. I want to go to the, you know, the movies or whatever, you know, that I think is a lot more difficult when you have the, the older ages. Oh, don't even, even beyond the teenagers. I'm, go, I'm going to tell, yeah. you know, I have, my eldest nephew is 26 years old, and he lives at home with my brother, uh, his father, and uh, he apparently has been a handful during the pandemic in Pennsylvania. Uh, I can imagine. Uh, he wants to go out. He wants to hang with his friends. He wants to see his girlfriend. Girlfriend's mother is like, well, if you come over here, you're staying here, and you're not going to come and go. And but and then that that didn't take too well after a week or so. And it's <laughs> dad, I want to come home. And um, so just so the, even in their twenties. Even in their twenties, it's not just teens. There and yeah. and apparently, when you're in your twenties, I guess mask wearing isn't cool. Oh really? Uh, apparently, I... until they tell you at, at a store, you must put it on. Um, we, we have a belligerent one in the family. Uh, right. So, <laughs> so see, at 19 months, you're perfect, man. You you got it. Yeah, the only thing is the only the only downside is that a 19 month year old uh, can't put on a mask or wear a mask. So yeah. we also are sort of homebound. Like we can't, you know, we were going to travel east and you know see family and go to the East Coast, but like that's not an option right now because we can't. He's not going to wear a mask on a plane. So we're no. the only you know we're, we're definitely cooped up at home right now. So well, unless you wanted to drive and be in the car with a 19 month old for days on end. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about it. Oh, my God. So now where can everybody find Baby Splitters right now? So it's available pretty much on every uh, digital platform out there, um, it, you know, for any of, the, any of the transactional space. So, you know, iTunes, Amazon, um, Vudu, Google Play, uh, Vimeo, all those sites, as well as all the cable providers. So whether you have Spectrum or Charter or BIOS or whatever you use, it'll be on all those video on demand services. So it's it's pretty much pretty much everywhere, um, so, except for in theaters. It's, except in theaters. So be- <laughs> before I let you go, Sam, I how exciting is this? You're you know to Larry Gay. That's one thing. It went straight to VOD. You didn't get even get your festival experience. You know now you've had your festival experience. You at least have some idea of your film being in a theater on a big screen. How do you feel now, now that you've gotten to this juncture and 
hopefully you're going to get your third film made in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, no, it feels great. And I think, you know, uh, with Larry Gay, that was a project that had originated outside. You know, it, it came from Mark Feuerstein. He had, he had brought me the script, and <laughs> we had made it together, and it was an absolute... Um, it was an absolute blast, but I think this was such a different experience because I was the writer, and there's something for me about originating the material and directing it that just I, I, I much prefer doing that. I, I think it just it, you know it's more personal, and I think it's just a lot easier to direct actors when you've written every line and you know every beat. So I, you know I'm just I'm just so happy to have made a movie as a writer director that that feels like you know it's truly my voice and I can go out there and, and show people. So I'm, it, it's, it feels like a, a really satisfying accomplishment. Well, I'm just so happy for you. And, you know, to have been on the journey at the beginning with, with the first festival and, you know, now here you are with distribution. I, I'm just thrilled for you, Sam. Absolutely thrilled. And I personally can't wait to see what you do next. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me on, and I hope everyone, you know, goes and checks out Baby Splitters and, and also finds another independent film that they like, because I think this the one nice thing about all these Hollywood movies being canceled is people have a chance to find movies that they may not have um, yes. discovered otherwise. Absolutely. Sam, thank you so, so much, and I expect you back on the show when you get your next film done. Of course, of course. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Bye-bye. All right, bye. And that was Sam Friedlander talking about baby splitters. And now, now we're going to welcome the very talented Andrew, director, Andrea Dorfman, to talk about Spinster. Welcome, Andrea. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm very happy to be talking to you about Spinster. Wow, what a film. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I did not know what to expect with this film. And I am beyond pleasantly surprised by it. Um, oh, I, I love the entire premise. Um, you know, here we have a woman is turning 39 years old. She's single. Doesn't have any kids. Of course, everybody is yelping around. Everybody around her, they're coupled up. They have kids. Um, I've been there, done that. You know, um, listen to it my whole life. I'm 62 and I still made it through with no kids and, and no and no husband. So I totally relate to this film um, where but this journey that we go on with Gabby over the course of a year, how much a life can change from being cynical and droll and negative and antagonistic almost to like the change of the seasons, like your chapterization in the film. Um, so does a person change and so does life mm -hmm. and its circumstances. And we see all this unfold and it is wonderful to watch. Where did, where did you, did this story originate from? Cause I know that you worked with Jennifer to come Jennifer dial to come up with the, mm -hmm. Uh, with the story, and then Jennifer's credited with the script. But where did this mm -hmm. whole idea come from for this story? Because this actually celebrates women who make the decision to put their careers first, and they don't really need the kids or the guy 
um, even though in, in moments of panic and despair you think you do. Um, Mm -hmm. but it really, it, it, this really has a woman standing on her own two feet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it came from, um, really from two different places. Jennifer and I came up with the story together and she and I were becoming really good friends when I was in, we were both in our thirties and she, she had actually settled down and was married and had a child. And I had not, and I just had this feeling like all of my friends were either at that time getting married, having kids, or falling in love. Like, they were in some sense of that. And I wasn't. And I had a different friend sit down and, and actually say to me, well, what if you never meet somebody? And I hadn't actually thought about that because we were, were trained to believe that if we don't follow a certain path we're going to be unfulfilled or unsatisfied but it was a real sort of call it a turning point or hitting rock bottom but it's when I really pushed off and I thought yeah like what if you know we don't know what's going to happen and and I it was such a strong epiphany realization for me that I think that was a moment I started to create a life that was about me just about me and and really to embrace it and so that so that it really crystallized it's, a, it's the for me the the movie came out of a moment mm-hmm. and for, for Jennifer she had a good friend another friend in her 30s who was a biologist and everybody just asking her when are you going to get married when are you going to have kids and she was single and Jennifer just couldn't believe somebody so accomplished that even now people are still asking, when is it going to all begin for you? And it, and it just doesn't seem to be a choice. So, so it was really pulling together these two ideas, these two stories. And, uh, and, and yeah, that was the genesis of the film. I mean, you meld the, you know, the opposing viewpoints so well. Um, and you show everybody that there's room for everybody. That everybody has a valid voice, that everybody's opinion, there's room for it all. Um, mm-hmm. And that really comes to fruition with your wonderful, with your wonderful biologist in the film, the next door neighbor, uh, mm-hmm. which, which was just so real watching that the party scene with her. It was just so wonderful watching that. But I mean, this whole film, were you always going to direct this, Andrea? Yes, yes. So Jen, this is my fourth feature film, right. and Jennifer and I have collaborated on two of the four. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was always the the next film that I was going to do. Yeah, so, so there it is. So how did you start approaching this one in terms of directing? Because I got to tell you, the cinematography, those exteriors along the the coast. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Stephanie Ann Byron as your DP. Gorgeous, gorgeous work. Um, so yeah, really so beautiful. Oh, and the way that you use light in terms of telling the story and how we go from a grayish day to a sunlit after a certain element, after certain things happen in the course of a day. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, it's it, it's almost as if nature, you know, Mother Nature's smiling down. The heavens are smiling <laughs> down. Um, yeah. That, yeah. Well, I do, I do have to say my cinematographer is just brilliant. It, a woman cinematographer, first of all, which is rare, even at, again in this day and age. Yeah. And she just is an incredible creative genius. And she has, you know, a way with light. And, and we, and, Fortunately, for, especially for low-budget filmmaking, we live in a time where we don't need a lot of light. Right. The cameras are so sensitive, we can really use what we have. So we really chose to go out at magic hour and, and shoot at certain times of the day. And because we were governed a little bit by seasons and weather, it was tr- tricky. And we're low-budget, so we couldn't necessarily wait for weather. But that's where Stephanie... Uh, beyond the cinematographer could really step in and and create something that perhaps wasn't there yeah i mean it's it's a beautiful film to look at and because of the change of seasons you know how mm-hmm. what did you go in and out did you shoot stuff in some stuff in winter wait or how did you work that in terms of, yeah. of mother nature's <laughs> oh, so mother, crazy. We, mother nature's non-cooperation I mean, no, no, and this was a 17-day shoot. Oh, my uh, that God. We, got in June. we shot it, uh, yeah, in the month of June, but I went out with somebody in the the following November, and we live in Canada, so it often snows in November, and got um, the winter look for that. But, oh. it was, but Chelsea was long gone at that point, so we had to have a stand-in and, um, yeah, just sort of create it, you know, it's, well, it's guerrilla filmmaking. You have to be creative. Well, you're creative enough that it truly does look like it was shot at various points, you know, of the year, dependent upon the seasons. Oh, uh, that's so great. I'm so glad you say that. Yeah, it doesn't It doesn't look like you went back in and did pickups, um, you know, at a different, time, a different point of the year. The light is so well matched because... As you know, the sun, the position of the sun has changed by that point. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, Stephanie did a really lovely, lovely job there. But you bring yeah, up we, sure you did. bring up Chelsea, and this film revolves around Chelsea Peretti as Gabby. Mm-hmm. How? Where did you find her? Um, because the way that the film opens, and I've got to tell you, I'm watching this, and I'm like, oh my god. This is the most miserable woman on the planet. She hates life more than I do. Um, <laughs> but then I'm listening to, you know, I'm hearing Daniel Ledwell's score. And it's like, okay, it's it's contra to what the vibe we're getting from her. So you've, mm-hmm. you've got this great juxtaposition going on from the start that makes you want to see, okay, where is this going? And Chelsea yeah. just takes off. Yeah. Yeah. She, she was just, I mean, she is in every scene of that film. She's just, uh, I mean, it was an incredible performance from her. She had to have incredible stamina to, to pull it off. She'd never done anything like that. Brooklyn nine, nine, when you're part of a ensemble cast, you know, you're in and out even in the day, but she happened to be between having a baby and Brooklyn Nine-Nine starting again. And she was just willing and open. I mean, I really think we caught her at the perfect time. Um, funnily, I hadn't even seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine 
I had seen her stand up, which I loved, and I thought she was just so smart and real. And I thought, wow, what wonder what she'd be like. And I'd heard of Brooklyn Nine Nine and watched it. And so we we were working with a casting agent um, in LA, and they approached her, and she got the script, and she loved the script. Um, it's a fantastic script. Uh, Jennifer did an amazing job, and she said, okay, I'm, let's talk. And the main uh, sort of criteria for her was that because she is a comedian and she does have um, a way with comedy, mm-hmm. she wanted to be able to, if there was a way to massage a joke or to, to make it more um, something that she would say out of her, in her own words. She wanted to have that creative input, which we said, absolutely. And uh, so she came pretty much as far as you possibly can and stay on the North American continent from L.A. to Halifax, Nova Scotia, oh, and spent a month here. Yeah. I mean, she is just watching her embrace this character of Gabby and go on this journey and drag us along with her. Um, it's just fascinating. And it's kudos to you and your costume design, your hair and makeup, because we see distinct changes in Gabby's look as the mm-hmm. year goes by. Da- right down to her hair color. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's wonderful watching that. We see a change in the... in. The, the fit of the clothing, the colors of her clothing. And the film really takes a turn, an interesting turn, when, she, when Gabby starts spending time with her niece. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the emotional shift that we get there as her eyes get opened without her, I think, even realizing it is just amazing. And it just soars. Mm-hmm. From that, it just soars mm. you know yeah how how challenging was it to find the perfect casting here of everybody you know finding chelsea but then her bestie amanda susan kent is wonderful bill carr i'll see bill carr in almost anything um <laughs> who plays her, yeah. da- her, it, da- her dad you know halifax is a small city and we, you know, a lot of people who live here, um, actors who want to make a career, they leave and they go to Toronto or Vancouver or New York or L.A. They don't often stay. So we have a lot of, in the film, people who, you know, uh, somebody might be a mail carrier, but a part-time actor or, you know, like a teacher and a part-time actor. So it's really I mean I think it was just everybody stepped up and did an incredible job um with with the their performances and and I think there was just a real like a lot of low budget films there was a real energy on set and people were wanting to put their best foot forward and and they really did um but then there were people like Bill Carr and and um and Kate who Caitlin, who were, have been in lots of other productions and are working actors. But, but yeah, a lot of people here in Halifax have to make a living doing other jobs. And I have to say, is it, is it Nadia, Nadia Tonin who plays our, yeah. our niece Adele? Oh, my yeah. God. She is fabulous. Yeah, she is just amazing. 
was she a help? And they really did have a, a wonderful um, energy chemistry between them, Chelsea and Nadia. They uh, really adored each other. That real and that really comes through on screen. Mm. It really comes through on screen. Especially when they're sitting there knitting. And if you watch, they're knitting in sync to each other. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, a little mini happening. Now, now, was this a casting criteria? You had to know how to knit? In order- <laughs> <laughs> no. no, Chelsea did not know how to knit. And uh, my friend Mimi runs the local sort of knitting shop. And funnily enough, earlier in the summer, she had to teach Willem Dafoe how to knit for a movie that was being shot here called The Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. So she's our celebrity knitting teacher. <laughs> and yeah, she, she uh, taught Chelsea how to knit. And, um, and now she knows how to knit. <laughs> oh, my God. And, of course, so you've got kids in the film. And, of course, as W.C. Field said, never work with kids and animals. But you've got a great kid on screen that you're working with. And you've got a dog that is a scene stealer. Yes. Yeah, the dog is fantastic. I mean, I love working with kids and animals, so it's um, yeah, that was no problem. For us. How how difficult was it to cast the right dog to play Trudy? Well, I really wanted it. We wanted a seniors dog. I've all I've always thought that you know I love it when people um, adopt rescue dogs mm-hmm. to rescue a seniors dog. Is I mean I find that so touching and so. Um, when we had our casting uh, for the dogs, I just, I really just went for the, I mean, obviously I wanted a, a smart and adorable dog, but I went for the older dog. Oh, I, that dog is just, you see that little face um, and just trotting along on the hike in the woods. It just, you fall in love with the dog. I got to so, tell you, um, you, you fall in love with the dog. You know, how challenging was was the editing process on this one because of the humor that Chelsea brings and the timing of so many of uh, what turns into be jokes. They're not... Yeah, they're, well, I mean, that in some ways is the easiest part. The, the hard part is that for a low-budget film, you don't often have a lot of options right. and you don't have a lot of setups. So as a, I mean, I'm, it's my fourth film, and they've all been quite low budget. So I'm always, you know, this is the place where I come from. How do we shoot to get the coverage, but at the same time shoot within setups where we don't have to do a ton uh, of setups? And so I think that's always going to be the challenge for an editor of a low budget film. You know, you kind of have to go into it as a director planning for the edit. Um, and knowing, you know, if you if you have to get away with just shooting a master and that's it, how that's going to work. And comedy, of course, has its own um, set of rules because you need reactions and you need the timing, and so you can't just shoot, you know, one offs unless mm-hmm. it's uh, unless there's some physical comedy and it's going to take up the frame. And so, so yeah, it's uh, it, you know the a- the editing really goes um, part and parcel with the. I, I do a lot of recording when I'm. Um, directing, so I storyboarded the entire film. Oh my god! Wow, wow that that I find surprising, but it shows in in the end product though that de- yeah, you, that you, detail. You, 
for me, I also do animation, so it's it's kind of like I always enjoy the the storyboarding. Well, I have to, speaking of animation, the opening titles. Hello, fabulous, <laughs> fabulous. Oh. Yeah, I really love it. But again, low-budget film. We had nobody to hire for that. So. Oh, yeah. I, the opening title, the animated opening titles are fabulous. I love them. Now, okay. the score here. Talk to me about Daniel Ledwell and the score and what your conversations yeah. with Daniel were like for what you were looking for musically yeah, yeah. in so, this film. So he is a massive talent from the East Coast. His, his uh, partner's life is... Ben Grant, who's a, a very well-known here, and um, he produces a lot of work for other people. So this was actually the first full movie he scored. And really? uh, when we sat down, I mean, you, you, you said that you had a really good point earlier where you said that the music was juxtaposing the scene. And from the beginning, we always wanted the music to have a levity to it, to have a lilt to it and a warmth, but also a sentimentality uh, because there are some really catching moments through the film. I mean, it's, it's ultimately becoming a age film mm-hmm. um, in a way, even though it sort of takes the, the rom-com premise to begin with. And, he, you know, he just hits those notes of, I mean, I'm such a sentimental person, but... Uh, I thought that that's what ultimately he he created, and and I wanted him to go for is is the warmth and the warmth of of Chelsea's character, Gabby, mm-hmm. because she's she's going through a vulnerable time, and and her anger is coming from a place of of fear and protectiveness, defensiveness, and so I you know I think a lot for a lot of women characters who come out as quote, unlikable at the beginning, unquote, I, um, which I don't like that criticism. But I was always thinking, like, I wonder if we'll get that because of the, you know, of where Gabby's at at the beginning. And I, and I don't really care, but I but I do think that um, Danny's uh, score really, really kind of the foundation. Um, yeah. Yeah, I I think his score is fabulous and even going beyond the score, even the instru- the selection of the instrumentation within the score. Oh yeah. Um you know, it it stays light also. There's not, you know, heavy brass or percussion or it's all kept light. Um with yeah. lighter strings, lighter woodwinds. Uh and I it just I think it is absolutely charming. And oh, great! Yeah, you know, I and the fact that it does counter what we initially, uh, what we initially, you know, see. Um, of course, I got to say the histrionics of, you know, with Gabby begging, begging, begging the boy, <laughs> the, the the boyfriend or roommate—I'm not sure what—on her hands, you know, down, fit, yeah. you know, hands clasped was hilarious. Yeah, was yeah. hilarious. Very over the top. Um, well, and and you also carry all the carry the whole persona, um, not just through the, the the contra with the music, but I love how you use the production design um, as an extension of Gabby, so that mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. life is so empty even after boyfriend is gone, 
And okay, fine. She goes and she gets a, an inflatable mattress because there's nothing else in the apartment. Yeah. Um, and that's all that remains in that apartment for quite some time until yeah. the, until her niece starts, you know, Adele starts coming and she has to watch her and, you know, well, the kid's got to sit somewhere. Uh, but slowly yeah. we see pictures, we see furniture, we, we see growth. This whole film, we see yeah. growth on this journey. And it's just so well packaged, so well told, Andrea. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm really glad you liked it. You know, what did you, you know, it's your fourth film, but what did you take away from this experience as a director? What did you learn about yourself that you'll now take really that you'll now take forward into your fifth film and your sixth film and your seventh film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think probably he, you know, there are things that I'm I'm good at at this point just because of you know having to make or, or making low budget films. So I think I I kind of have that down. I. You know, I started writing, you know, right from the creation of this low budget. But having Chelsea, for us, I mean, that, talk about juxtaposition, because she's somebody who has a certain amount of star power and influence. Mm-hmm. And with that came a whole layer of navigating for me. And uh, and, and I had never had to, you know, like, a, I'm a Nova Scotia filmmaker in, in a small city in Canada. And, um, you know, to be honest, to be able to sell a film, you have a much better chance if there's somebody who's well-known in it. So for me, I think working with, uh, with an actor at a certain caliber of, um, of acting, well, not even a, of acting, but just when they're known and what comes with that, uh, it's, yeah, it's just, it, I've had to develop different skills while at the same time you know I'm and and that demands a certain kind of attention but at the same time there's a whole crew of, of people who I'm I need to be available and there for so mm-hmm. I think sometimes for me it was navigating those two worlds uh, and and if there were skills I hadn't had or I certainly began to develop them um, in that realm uh, over this film so now, being a, an independent filmmaker in a small town in Halifax, up in Nova Scotia, how has the pandemic affected your filmmaking? Have you oh been, my God. Have you been creating? Were you in the middle of shooting something new? What has this been yeah. like? Because, you know, it's, this is so far-reaching and has touched mm-hmm. every, every part of the world. Um, that no matter how small a town or how remote you it may be, I would have to say you're still touched and affected by this. Absolutely. And, um, I mean, this, this film, for example, was supposed to be in movie theaters, like a lot of filmmakers, and so that uh, isn't going to happen, and it'll go straight to uh, VOD and, and whatnot. But for me personally, like everywhere, we had lockdowns, and... Um, I started making a film, uh, a COVID-related So I'm still making that, actually. I'm almost finished. This is my last week. And I do it, I'm doing it entirely in my, in my home, my own setup. It's animated, so 
I have the equipment to do it. So I've been working kind of nonstop throughout the entire pandemic. And um, so I think for artists, I mean, for most of us, it's so different, you know, like for us, it just means the time and the focus and the resources to be able to create. And I'm lucky enough that all of those have fallen into place. But uh, I could see how if this continues on and on, and, you know, I don't know how arts funding happen or yeah. you know, my next film. So I think for, for me and for a lot of people, it's the present tense right now. Just thinking in the moment, I have this work, I have my head down, and, um, and I'm, yeah, and so I'm going to create. Well, here's hoping that when your animation is done, that it gets out there in the world so we can see that. Um, I hope so. <laughs> and that you can get back to creating live action as well. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. I mean, we just don't know what's yeah. happening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Andrea, really... I can't, this has been a joy talking to you about Spinster. Um, oh, well, Great talking to you. You asked great questions. You know, as I said, I didn't know what to expect with this film. I was more than pleasantly surprised, and it is a lot of fun. And I just love watching Gabby's antics and this journey that she goes on. Um, but it's it's all those little elements. It's the score that that counters what we what we're we think we're going to see and then the cinematography stephanie cinematography is just breathtaking in moments and the way that it is cut and edited into the story so that the use of light and those magic hours actually address emotions and events in gabby's life it just so well done so well done andrea Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Debbie. Thank you so much. And I hope you'll come back on the show again, when, maybe when okay. your animation is done. Yeah, sure. I'll let you know when it's finished. Terrific. Thank you, Andrea, so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Andrea Dorfman, director of Spinster, which is on all your VOD platforms. So that is all the time we have for today. I have no clue who we have next week. Um, but I guess we'll find out next Monday what we're going to be doing. But in the meantime, Baby Splitters, Spinster, uh, you know, low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget films that are charming and delightful. And, of course, my two big picks this week. The Cuban and Made in Italy are two absolute must-see films. And if you haven't seen the documentary yet, Alex Winter's doc, Showbiz Kids, that is another absolute must-see. And it'll get you into an Alex Winter frame of mind as we count down to Bill and Ted Face the Music on September 1. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 